What is up, everybody? I'm Chad, that's Ben, and we are doing the damn thing. It's the podcast exclusively for the $10 and $20 patrons of the co-main event. This is the show where we talk about all the non-MMA-related content we think might be of interest to you guys. Ben, today is a special day on doing the damn thing. For starters, it's still Pledge Month, and we would like to welcome in Everybody who might be listening as part of the special free preview of our weekly Patreon content. Once again, if you like what you hear this week and what you heard last week, we would invite you to join the team by signing up for a Patreon subscription to support the podcast over at patreon.com slash co-main event. You can get access to hours of additional premium content every single week. Plus, get access to the CME's official Discord message board where cool people are over there talking fights and a bunch of other stuff pretty much 24-7. Right now, if you sign up for an annual subscription, you get 10% off. And if you join at the $10 or $20 level with an annual subscription, we'll send you a free shirt. Just go in and pick the one you want. Send me an email with your size and your address. And we'll get it in the mail to you ASAP. Of course, that offer is available to patrons in the United States only. But join us, we beg you, over at patreon.com slash co-main event. That's not all, though, Ben. Today is a special day also because we're going to be joined by friend of the show, longtime patron, cool all-around guy, and actual Hollywood TV writer, Kevin Sesha, who is going to get us all up to speed about what's going on with the current WGA writer strike down in L.A., We're excited about that. Many of our listeners are already familiar with Kevin from the Patreon page and from such events as last summer's co-main event podcast meetup down in Vegas, but we think it's going to be a really interesting talk to have him on today. It's going to be about a subject we've probably all heard about and which may impact our entertainment and viewing lives, but it's also a subject that many of us might not actually know that much about, so it's going to be cool to get into that. Plus, we will have cracking up coming up during the second half of the show where we will wrap up Seattle's 2023 season, which ended with a second round game seven loss to Dallas last week. Just one moment of silence. But first, Ben, before we get into any of that, how you doing? Well, Chad, listeners of especially this branch of the CME properties well, I've heard me talk before about some of my various mental health struggles, which I feel on one hand, like as a 43-year-old man, it's taken me kind of a embarrassingly long time to even begin to understand what's going on up in my, my mind brain sometimes, uh, and an embarrassingly long time to, to seek out help navigating that. Sometimes though, especially as I've come to understand more even very recently about like, okay, here's where you might fall in terms of like categorizations of stuff that goes wrong in people's brains. And here's some of the things to look out for as sort of warning signs that things are going sort of up and down for you and that you need to be paying extra close attention. And it's weird to get into that kind of space because I'll start analyzing some of my own behavior and it gets confusing at times. And I'm going to give you an example very recently, uh, especially in the last 
few weeks or months, there have been times where I felt like my own mental state is erratic and unpredictable. And sometimes that can come with like a really like crushing low period, but sometimes it comes with a kind of manic high period. Okay, which I mean, that sounds cool. Yeah. At the time, <laughs> you're like, fuck, yeah, I'm riding this unstoppable wave and like everything's going great. And yeah, like I got a great idea. I should build myself a home gym in my garage so that like I can sort of lean into my agoraphobia by never having to leave the house at all, like to go to the gym anymore. I can just do everything at my house, work here, work out here, hang out here. Every That's all I need. And then you kind of go, first of all, is that a great idea to just sort of lean into self-isolation? Second of all, though, is it really like a good idea that I'm having or does everything sound like a good idea right now? Like, does any sort of big, huge change or project that you could lean into and consume yourself with so as not to think about anything else, does, does all of that yeah. only seem like a good idea to you? Uh, which is my way of saying that I have an awesome squat rack and bench press set up in my garage right now. Oh, that's awesome, man. What kind, <laughs> it of, is bar, awesome. What kind of bar you got out there? You got a, you got a rogue, uh, 20 or 45 pounder. You got, this, I got the 45 pounder Olympic. I got, I got some bumper plates. Okay. Um, you know, it's still an ongoing work. Uh, but yeah, right now I'm super into it. I still can't tell if it's an actual good idea or just a manic good idea yeah okay but can i point out one thing though sure i think that as long as and i'm not saying this is the only thing but if your manic highs are directing you to do such things as build a home gym in your garage that is at least better than if your manic highs were directing you toward like riding your motorcycle as fast as you possibly could without a helmet down Broadway at four o'clock in the morning with a white claw in one hand and a cocaine straw still halfway up your nose <laughs> from when you were hanging out at the silver dollar. Like that's, it seems like what you got going is, is at least in this example, better than that. Yes. At least this example is yeah. better than that. And it has helped to gain a little understanding and get some like professional outside opinion on some of this stuff, because Sometimes what I've noticed has happened is that when you get in sort of a manic phase, uh, you meaning me, you it, it can come with like a sort of ongoing background agitation, mm -hmm. like an inability to feel comfortable at all. And that one of the things that sometimes occurs to you, again, meaning me, to do in that kind of situation is to drink too much because that will calm it down. Like it's yeah. a... It's an effective form of self-medication in a way in that the the constant agitation and like the the uncomfortableness of just being stuck in your own head is sort of alleviated that way. But it comes with other problems uh, that result from that. And so really trying to, to break some of those patterns and habits. And at least, yeah, this does seem like more productive. But it also, there are every once in a while and this is a thing I have to not dwell on too much as I go, God damn it. I, here I am as a man, a father of two in his mid forties almost. And I'm still trying to figure out just how to fucking be just how to be in the world. It reminds me of one of my favorite lines from Deadwood that calamity Jane says at one point, which is every day takes learning all over again, how to fucking live. 
And granted, Calamity Jane was an alcoholic at this <laughs> point. So, you know, maybe, sure. Like, that's a little bit of what's going on there. But there are times like where I just feel like, I'm kind of tired of this shit, man. You know, like, I should, I should have a little bit more figured out. But then another thing that's helped to get sort of a professional perspective on is that it doesn't do you a whole lot of good to sit around and talk about what you think you should have or should yeah. have accomplished or should understand by now. You just kind of got to work with what you got. So that's where I am. And if yeah. you want to come over here and jack some weight, you know, oh, I'm ready to clean and jerk brother. Let's, let's go. It's been a while. Uh, first of all, I think calamity Jane probably had a dope home gym. That's just my guess. <laughs> just off the she top did of have a head. dope rope rig set up on her horse to keep her from falling off. If you yeah. recall. Yeah. Uh, a couple things I would say in defense of you. And it's, you know, it's not prop up Ben Folk's hour here, but number one, like it's eh, stuff you're describing doesn't sound that unusual to me. It's possible that I have a similar mental situation, but like, eh, I feel like well, a lot of us are prone to that kind of stuff. And like thinking something is a really good idea for like 45 minutes and then wasting a bunch of time and then realizing, oh, I can't actually build a dining room table. I only <laughs> thought I could until I got all this lumber and a hammer and a couple of nails or whatever. Secondly, like we're all just figuring it out at 45 years old. It is one of the things about growing up is that you realize that every adult is just fucking faking it, that we're all just big balls of nerves and experiences and all this other stuff. In addition to that, I would say in your defense, we here in America, even in the year of our Lord, 2023, pretty much discourage still any kind of mental or philosophical or emotionally or emotional soul searching on the part of men. We still have that bias in our culture. And so the fact that we as middle-aged people, we're, we're probably about a quarter of the way through, right? Through the, through our lives. Well, quarter I mean, to half. I'll see you at 90. Uh, there's no way, but okay. The, the, the fact that we're just now like starting to, reckon with all this other stuff is is more indicative of where we were at as a culture than anything else so i don't think you should see it as like a personal shortcoming of ben folks that here you are father of two in your 40s still trying to figure shit out i just think that that is where a lot of us are at in terms of the evolution of the world and how we think about who we are and how and how we process information and how we live so people are always running around being like oh why are men monsters? And the truth is like, because you fucking raised us to be monsters, you dumb motherfuckers. That's why. And so you're a product of that. That's why you're a monster. You don't need to feel bad about <laughs> Thanks. it. Thank you. It's, it's just that that's, that's how we were all brought up. Hopefully we can do better for the next generation. That's all there is. What you're telling me is that the culture has failed me. Yeah, it has okay. failed you. You can't use that yeah. as a crutch. You know, yeah, like I, I mean, I think a your house and your responsibility is a is a, a, a play here too. But yeah, I, I see what you're saying. If you're cementing a bunch of dead bodies into your basement, the next time I come over, you can't turn around and be like, "It was the culture." But you know, it's, it's also still it's not unreal. It's not a non-factor. It's a factor for sure. So, you know, there you go. Also, I think you're stupid and fuck you. <laughs> Just so we don't get off on too too positive of a start. Yeah, here. I appreciate that. So what's going on with you? How you been? Well, I gotta take my uh my middle son to the doctor today. He's uh he's eight now. He has terrible eczema, and mm. it is brought on a lot of times by 
the sun and the heat and dirt and sweat and grass and all of the shit that kids get into when it starts to be spring and warmer outside. So he is flaring up. His skin is flaring up a little bit right now. And we recently, you know, within the last six to eight months or so, we, we tried to get him started on this eczema medication called uh, Dupixin, which is uh, it's the it's the top going thing right now for the dermatologists, especially for children. It really does a number on the eczema. The only catch is that it's an injection that he has to get once a month. And at first they were like, hey, you guys can just do this injection at home. And we were like, ha ha, looks around nervously. Okay, we'll give it a try. Yeah, come kids to find- famously a yeah. fan of needles. Yeah, come to find out that was a no-go because not only does my eight-year-old have what you might consider to be a natural childhood fear of needles, he fucking hates it. Like he screams like someone is trying to murder him. Like I am literally afraid someone is going to call the police. That's how loud he screams. And we have to like physically pin him down. It takes two people to physically pin him down and hold him still while his aunt who loves him dearly and is a, a nurse, a registered nurse administers the injection. And it's just sort of like, we can't inflict that trauma on anyone any further. My son and or my wife and I, but most especially his aunt, who is like <laughs> the, you know, the villain painted as the villain in all of yeah. this. And so uh, I'm going to start taking him into the doctor now and hopefully they will give him the injections there today will be day one of that and we will see mm. how it goes. So that is what I have planned uh, for my Thursday afternoon. It's going to be great. All right. I'm just, uh, I'm an idea guy. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to throw out a suggestion. It's just, this is us just spitballing. There are no bad ideas in the brainstorming space. This is just me just throwing something out there. You don't like it. You send it right on back. Here's what I'm going to say. Blow dart. <laughs> maybe the problem is the anticipation, right? Like leading up to the shot, knowing you oh, have to get the it shot, absolutely the anxiety is. about yeah. it. 100% yeah. that's the problem. Because once the shot, bad, it takes like two seconds, then he's done. So what if we just fashion a blow dart system? He's just going about his day. He's playing with his, his collection, his impressive collection, frankly, of dinosaur figures uh, that I've seen in your house. Just walking here to there, uh, going to the kitchen to get a grilled cheese, and then... That blow dart comes out, just sticks him, and he's like, ah, and you're like, it's over. Yeah. It's over until next month. And then, you know, we'll, we'll you, you'll just have to be on guard then. Yeah. No, you know, that's not a bad idea because my boys actually are kind of fascinated by blow darts. In well, fact, it's not fascinated by blow darts. Right. Shit. Like blow blow darts seems to be one of those weird things that there is almost a universal fas- fascination by young boys about like blow darts, jet packs. You know, stuff that like doesn't actually have once you grow up, you realize, oh, blow darts actually yeah. are not a dominant part of the culture. But not like when as you're widespread yeah. as I thought they were going to be. Yeah, you know, it's like not everyone is like super into jetpacks when you grow up. But like when you're a kid, you're just like, oh, blow darts and jetpacks and throwing stars are that'll pretty much dominate my life when I grow up. And then come to find out you just have to get a job and have kids and then die. Yeah, I mean. Maybe if there were some blow darts along the way, eh, the journey could be a little merrier or well, at least ex- more interesting, more exciting. Yeah, I'm excited for me if I'm one of the people who gets to shoot the blow dart. Let's just, let's just say that. I think maybe right. you guys should take oh. a firing squad approach in your family that where people. <laughs> he, do- he doesn't know who actually yeah. has the injection. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 
just an idea. Again, idea That's, guy, right? Here. I mean, I'm loving these ideas. I think that I think that they're great. I'm gonna bring them up to my wife the next time we have a a, a meeting on the subject. All right, I think that's going to do it for uh, our catch-up here, our weekly catch-up. And uh, right now, after the break, we are going to get into our conversation with Kevin Sesha. All right, everybody, we are joined by Kevin Sesha. We're delighted to have him here to talk a little bit about what is going on with the WGA strike down there in LA, how it's impacting him, what's going on with his life, et cetera, et cetera. As I said during the introduction to the show, many of you are already familiar with Kevin. In fact, many of you may have rubbed elbows with him at the uh, co-main event podcast meetup down there in Las Vegas over the summer. We are excited to have him on today in a slightly more formal context. Kevin, before we start, for anyone who's unfamiliar with you who may be listening to this, tell us who you are, what you do, brag about yourself a little bit. Uh, my name is Kevin Sesha, as you mentioned. Uh, I did go to the big CME meetup. I uh, won my, I was the guy, the handsome guy who won the uh, Yen Jacek MMA bobblehead during the live Master Tweet Theater, I believe it was. Um, I started as a comedian and the, for the past, decade or so i've been writing tv and uh, attempting to write movies so that's me you, you did you start as a stand-up comedian i did yeah i did that for a long time and uh sort of eventually yeah transitioned over into writing probably spread it around too much like everything from ill-advised game shows to short-lived internet sketch shows to kids programming to uh, improv-based stuff, and then kind of settled in the sort of half-hour animated sitcom world that I'm in right now. And when I try to think about what your stand-up might have been like, I'm picturing a lot of like women be shopping. Kind oh yeah. Of bit. yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe I'm, some. Prop I'm saying stuff. what you're what you're all thinking. You know what I mean? You guys <laughs> don't have the guts to say. Yeah. I'm pushing the envelope. I'm right on that razor's edge. You know, just saying wildly offensive stuff and trying to pass it off as insight. So. Yeah, a yeah. lot, lot of crowd work, making fun of people's clothes, stuff like that. They're yeah, the yeah. Classics. yeah, yeah. I don't stand there in the mic stand. I prowl that stage like a panther. You know, that's how you know you're getting the real edgy shit when they're. Yeah, I have always considered you an unflinching truth teller. So that's that's good to know. Uh, Kevin is currently a writer on the the Great North animated series. The uh, season finale is coming up on Sunday. I'm just going to whisper it to you. He wrote it, so should watch that. Check that out. Uh, one question before we dive into this writer's strike stuff. Why did you did you go away from, from stand-up? Is it because of the stress and terrible experience of being on stage? Or, or what was the deal? People weren't ready, you know? I, I was the first guy, like 10, 15 years, they would be where I was back then. And no, uh, I think the reality was it's, it's kind of grueling. Like, I yeah. love the stand-up part, but the, like, the having to travel and, and the monotony of that and, and sort of the, the lack of money, like if you don't want to be an actor, which I did not want to be, and you don't want to be like a host of a game show, there's no real path. You're just kind of doing that forever. And um, yeah, I think I just didn't want to be like on the road entertaining Trump voters. Hmm. Weird. Well, that's, yeah. <laughs> I guess I understand that choice. Um <laughs> All right, let's get into the meat of it here. This is what I talked about during the introduction to the show. We all obviously have heard of the writer's strike that is going on. Many of us are old enough to remember 
the last writer's strike when all of those unfortunate characters in Lost had to wind up in those bear cages for like three and four weeks on end because they just didn't have anybody to write the episodes. Uh, so many of us have heard of it, but I don't feel like many of us have a great understanding of what is actually going on and what the the uh, the issues at hand are. Can you give us the Cliff's Notes Idiot's Guide to version of what is happening? Absolutely. And, and, and just to be clear, I am a huge idiot, as you know. So this is my take. This is my limited man's uh, perception of it. I don't speak for the WGA. Um, I think the big overall problem is that the people running these streaming studios, Netflix, Amazon, Apple, like they aren't from Hollywood. They aren't from entertainment. So they have no love of the industry and they, they don't understand what it takes to create TV shows and movies. So they come in and all they know how to do is cut costs and just gut everything to increase profits. I, Hollywood, you may have heard, it's obviously very profitable. <laughs> There's a lot of money in this already. Um, people like movies and TV, you know. Um, but the kind of unlimited growth they want to make to give to make Wall Street happy is not realistic and it's unsustainable. Nothing grows forever infinitely, not even Ben's biceps. And you can't just have that, you know, that's not going to go on and on forever. There's money here. They're just being greedy. Um, and even like the old system of like studio heads, they loved money, too, but they like understood the process. You know, they often came up in the industry and they knew that it had to be protected because it's a means of sustainable profit. And it's sort of it's like a real guy who killed the golden goose situation with the, the streaming hits now. Um, but beyond that, more specifically, and I can dive into them if we need to or depending on, you know, but smaller room sizes for writers rooms is a huge issue. The lack of residuals for the streaming services uh, is another one. Uh, the potential use of AI, like there's some debate on how close we are to that. I don't know, but it's it's bad any way you slice it. Um, and then sharing the success of a project that is successful. Um, so those are the issues for me. You know, okay, I it's interesting you mentioned especially like residuals from streaming services and and sharing and the success thing. I was listening to the 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 daily podcast that the New York Times puts out where they their episode kind of outlining what they saw as the sticking points and kind of the the changing nature of how the job of writing for TV has gone from being a thing where, you know, you could write for a show, it gets in syndication, it airs in other countries, and you're still going to be making money off of it later when maybe you don't for the time being have a writing job. And so that's what made it be a sustainable career. And that that is largely disappearing with the streaming services. And that also, it seems like the, the goal for the streaming services has to be different than it was for networks who are just trying to get, ratings and viewers per episode and the streaming services are thinking about subscribers as a whole. How do you think that you, you come to some kind of understanding on each side with them being like, okay, look, your model is different than the TV network model that maybe the WGA is used to, but also people have to be around to write these shows. And like, there's been a lot of accusations that it seems like they're just trying to make writing for TV, not really a job anymore as someone like we see so much in our economy as everything turning into just independent contractor work where you're extremely disposable. How do you think you find some middle ground between what they want and what you want? I, I don't know. And, and like, to your point, yeah, there's like a real existential crisis vibe going on where like I think someone pointed out that, you know, as of yesterday, two and a half weeks into the strike, they've lost more money than they would have spent paying the writers what we want. Like we want something that like is less than 2% of the profits of what they make in a year. 
so you, you hear that and it's like, I think they do want to kind of crush this middle-class writer's realm. They want to get rid of it as a sustainable career. They want it to be, you know, a handful of chosen creators writing all their own shows and, and not the sort of, you know, wide ranging sustainable industry that it is now. And I, and I think I, so I think it's more about the money. I think they do kind of want to crush us. Um, I don't know if we're going to ever come to an agreement. I, I think it just, we have to hurt them until they realize they have no choice. And, you know, like, I don't think we're going to get everything, but like half of the companies and studios are kind of already doing a lot of what we're asking. Like I work for Fox and Disney and my show is a network show and we get 22 episodes a year and there are like 12 or 13 writers and we have the time to delve into pitching crazy oddball ideas and then dialing in on specific stories and character arcs and, and, and honing dialogue and joke pass after joke pass and, and really creating something. And it's just not there when you have like a streaming show where it's like six people doing it over eight weeks, maybe, or even shorter. And they're kind of squeezed dry, turned into these husks, you know, give us all your best ideas and then, go fuck off. And then the, the showrunner is going to like hone everything, but you're going to be out of work. And then again, you're not getting the residuals. So you're, you know, I, I heard an anecdote about like, I think someone on that show, the bear that had to like borrow money to go to like the, um, I don't know if it was the Emmys or some sort of award show won the award. He's like an award winning writer. And then like now, you know, a couple months later, he's like driving lift or something. And then like, this is a hit show. And yeah. And one where the writing seems particularly important. Yeah, yeah. It's just some guy dicking around a kitchen. You got better be the writing. There's no special effects. <laughs> Nobody's punching anyone. No robots. Um, but I think that's the thing. Yeah, it's like it's really sort of dark in terms of what they're trying to do. It's like I think that they're no, there's no subtlety about it. I think they're trying to crush us and destroy it as an industry, which has happened to like, you know, the music business. I don't I'm not an expert on it, but like they used to make money from selling it, I understand. And now they only make money touring. <laughs> You know, they have to tour nonstop to make money. Like they're getting pennies on their, you know, you get two cents for every hundred streams or whatever it is. It's ridiculous. Um, yeah. To hear you talk about it, and you just mentioned this as an example in the music industry, but you could almost be talking about any creative industry right now, just laying yeah. out what is going on with ownership and what some of the uh, the qualms are there with the, with the writers. It just seems like, the thing you are describing is not only happening in television, but is happening like industries wide in every yeah. creative walk of life, uh, including I didn't the world. Mind it with the journalism. Journalism, I was like, okay, that one should yeah. be squished out. Like for you guys, I don't have much sympathy. I'm sorry. Yeah, but we, we are uh, the enemies of America, so that's <laughs> fine. But, you know, just guys who are trying to write lovely, you know, Sunday night shows for everyone to sit, sit back and unwind and crack a couple of Budweiser's. You, you guys should be valued. <laughs> and uh, it, yeah, it's, uh, there's so much too in terms of, so there has been some talk of like, if we can break off the people like Disney or Fox or whoever, you, you know, it's sort of like, if, if we, if we can make deals with the smaller entities that make up this group, that might be a way to apply pressure. Like it sounds like Netflix is being the biggest piece of shit about this. And I think it's because that's their whole business. You know, they are not like an Amazon or like an Apple. Um, and I think a lot of it, you know, it, it's just, there's so much like opacity. Is that a word? You, you can't see shit in terms of like, you want to be involved in a product, a project that is successful and then be paid uh, to reflect that. But you don't really know, you don't have the ratings. Like even the creators of shows don't know like how well these shows are doing and they refuse to give us that information. 
And I think they're they're reluctant to do so because a doing that would then let us know that okay, you're on a hit show, we deserve more money. But also, if these things aren't as profitable as they're representing, then they're kind of screwed with their shareholders and Wall Street. Like if these things aren't doing anywhere near what they say they're doing, that's a bigger problem. So I think that's you know they're hanging on tooth and nail to try and not divulge this information. And and I think you know I don't think they're going to do that unless they absolutely have to because that's you know. The AI thing, I'm going to be honest with you, it worries me in a lot of ways as a person who has made his living his entire adult life as a writer of some sort or another. Yeah. Um, I, when you guys think about that, I mean, do you think, do you see it as a, I mean, these people are buying time until AI gets to the point where it's ready to write all the shows? And do you think that they think that's a viable model, that people will want to sit around and watch shows that a computer wrote? And that maybe a human went back in and fine-tuned a little bit. Yeah, I think it's it's multiple things. I, I mean, I think there's a chance this thing is is like just a real con game at this point, similar to like what you guys dealt with with like the big pivot to video that happened, where it's like, okay, no more articles, no more writing, blogging, it's all video. And then you find out those metrics were manipulated and nobody was watching these videos anyway. But sorry, we destroyed your industry. Uh, it, so it might be something like that. Like I don't look at what the examples I've seen lately with ChatGPT and, um, you know, it might be better than me, but it's not better than the majority of the writers out there. Like there's a couple that would give me a run for my money. But um, but no, yeah, I think it's I think they're grasping at any way to kind of save money and fuck us over. And I think I, I was dubious of, of how much of a threat this thing is. But yeah, like even right now, it, they can churn out a script with a couple of key elements they can throw in there and then pay a writer to rewrite it. And then, of course, you're rewriting it. You didn't write it. You didn't come up with the idea. So you're not going to get paid for all of that stuff. Meanwhile, it's just the machine didn't come up with it. It's regurgitating all this other stuff. It's been trained on and spitting it back out. Um, I saw just today on Twitter, there was like a some sort of a company that was touting their ability to like, I don't know if they were like a quasi publisher, but they were like going to churn out AI books. And they were trying to say like, no, this is helpful for the writer. You, It's like having a writing partner. <laughs> and it's like, well, you could get a human writing partner, but also like, they were thankfully being torn apart in the comments and, and, but it just, it feels like you, you know, unstoppable almost the ways in which people are trying to insert this into the various industries and in our lives. And I think at a certain point it might, you know, I, I heard like th th there was like the creepier take on it where I heard where like, it's like, you can suggest like, I want Marilyn Monroe and I want like, I'm a medieval knight and it's a story and you get to be in it with her and they'll just chat, you know, the robot will, ch you know, churn it out for you. And it's like really kind of niche bespoke entertainment. And um, I think we just need to limit that. I think you still need, it's, it's ripping off real writers to churn their, come up with the bullshit. Like you can't train this thing on anything other than real writers and those writers should be compensated and, and it should just be limited in terms of what we can do with it, um, I think. You guys are having like a an old school union strike where you're out there carrying picket signs around on the street, which heartens me to know that that is still a thing that happens because I were, have never worked in an industry where I would be part of a union. Uh, although if I had been born 50 years earlier, I would. I know you've been out there. What's what's the mood like? What's the experience like when you're out there actually picketing and you're surrounded by maybe other writers, people in the industry uh, who you don't know? But like, what's what's the mood? When you're out there, it's not great, Chad. No, I'm <laughs> it's, it's it's great. It's honestly it's great. And and I know we've taken some 
flack from that. I feel like on social media, people are like, why are the writers smiling? They need to be somber and grim faced and other people are being put out of work. And it's like, man, we're aware of that. We're aware of what we're sacrificing for future writers and for current writers. And uh, I, I think you can't, you can't do it with a frown on your, you know, you have to get fired up about the fight and, and what we're trying to do here. And so the mood is very fun and buoyant and upbeat. And I think it kind of has to be, we're, we're certainly aware of what is at stake. It is a scary time. It's, um, it's a dangerous thing we're doing here. And uh, I, I think it's, I, I don't think you can fault the writers for being excited about, you know, taking something back uh, that they've earned and they deserve. But like, to your point, Chad, I, I was similarly like ignorant of, the benefits of the actual picketing, you know, that when this was all happening, it was like, well, we're not going to write, we're taking our product away. I don't understand why the picketing is so important. It seemed like a lot of work at the time, I'll be honest. Uh, and I'm a lazy fellow. And, and I'm like, it's not like a grocery store picket line where someone's going to come in and take my job as a cashier. So we're going to yell at that person. Like there is not a, a big indication of like scabbing going on because of the penalties involved. So why are we out there? But the reality is, yeah, I didn't know what I was talking about. Like, it's it's very important. We are disrupting TV shows, movies being filmed. Some of the picketers are on set. There are horns honking. You know, we're imploring people to drive by to honk their horns to kind of make noise, just to even annoy these assholes. And then, there, you know, there's like the teamster aspect of it. Like, they won't cross a picket line. So, like, numerous productions have been disrupted and even shut down because if we're out there, if there are two people out there, I think is the rule with a sign, the Teamsters will, will not cross. They will not bring the trucks in. And so there's been a real uh, solidarity with the Teamsters and um, even with like SAG-AFTRA, the Actors Union, and, and hopefully with the Directors Guild, they're negotiating now currently. And, you know, there's a real chance the WGA could be joined by those other guilds coming up. That would be amazing and would obviously bring Hollywood to a halt if you have the directors and the actors and the writers. But, um, yeah, before I got off track there. The, the mood is good. It's, it's, it is real hot in Southern California, as uh, folks knows. Um, but um, it's fun and there's camaraderie and, you know, sometimes there's free pizza, cupcakes. You know, you get your, get your steps in and the Fitbit. I got like over, you know, 25,000 the other day. I was just like. Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, I heard, uh, I, I think it was on Twitter, a writer noting how one of the maybe big miscalculations that the the studios made here was underestimating how much writers want to glom onto any excuse to not write <laughs> and, yeah. you know, get out there, do something else instead. And it does seem like you guys should have at least one sort of built-in advantage that a lot of other people don't have in a strike situation is that when people start to feel the absence of the thing that you were providing, they seem like they will be less likely to blame you than they will be to blame networks, streaming services, and studios. And like I, I saw already, you know, some network putting out its uh, schedule for its fall lineup, and people were like, "This is garbage" because it's a bunch of game shows and reality shows and shit that doesn't require writers, basically. And but it's nothing but that essentially, and people they are not going to look around in a situation like that. It's like if the trash haulers go on strike and the trash starts piling up part of us is going to be like they need to get their ass out of here and throw that bag in the back of the truck and drive off with it because it stinks and with you guys it seems like you at least should have the thing where the people who have to bring the product to the consumer are the ones who are going to get blamed and they're the ones who you're trying to put the pressure on in the first place yeah as someone who creates trash the opposite of the example <laughs> that you uh, no, I, I think that's been kind of heartening too, that like the, um, 
in the past, in the various strikes, even with the agency strike, I feel like we were nowhere near as unified as we are now. And it, it does feel sort of nice to know that people do seem to be putting the blame where it is deserved. And um, I was talking to someone the other day who was like, my daughter is a costumer and she's out of work now. But but she was like, she supports what you guys are doing. And then this woman was also like, you know, everyone should go on strike. Like they're not paid as much either. Costumers, they should go on strike. Like people need to see the power in a union. Again, something that's very new to me and get what you were deserved. I mean, we're providing something that they cannot get elsewhere. And, and I think it's fair and they're getting rich off of it and we should be compensated for that. Like on a human level, how has this impacted your life? I know that you're probably not working right now. You're not, not banging out episodes of shows. I know I'm not on the side. I haven't told anyone that. So I'm good. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I got a costume. I, I scurry under the wall in a tunnel. Right. Well, I mean, despite the fact that you are, in fact, a coastal elite, not everyone in Hollywood is rich, right? Like not everyone is Jesse Armstrong out here uh, cranking out succession stuff. Yeah. Like uh, how, how much is this uh, like affecting your life and affecting the the lives of like people, you know, in the in the industry? Well, it's gotten bad for me. I might have to bump back my monthly pledge of, for the CME. I might. have. Oh, to go- hold on. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. uh, we'll be uh, down there tomorrow. <laughs> No, it, it is. It is very tough. And, um, you know, I, I'm 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 in a better position than a lot. I'm, I'm no Jesse Armstrong, but I feel, you know, like eating into your money and your savings and knowing there's nothing coming in and there's stuff going out is, is unfortunate. Um, you know, uh, my girlfriend was recently just bumped up to staff writer on a show and she'd been sort of, you know, scrimping and saving to kind of get to that point. She'd been a writer's assistant for many years. And then, so she had like a month of her dream job before it was yanked away. And so she's out there every day picketing. And it's just like, you know, she is not rich and she's also like trying to figure out where she's going to make ends meet, you know, moving forward. Um, It's weird too, just from like an existential sense. I don't know. It's, there's a weird, I, I feel like doing what I do or whatever, there's, there's like what you're working on and what you actually have, but there's also the possibility of like the Hollywood dream and maybe someone will read my movie and buy it, or maybe someone will like this, or maybe I come up with a new idea and I can sell it. And there's always this potential that you're aware of that feels kind of exciting, even if you're fooling yourself and nothing is going on. And so knowing that that is something that cannot happen anytime soon and that they're not even negotiating, you know, no one's going to open the window and be like, we got it. Like they're not even (laughs) talking right now. There, there is a bleakness to sort of the day to day where I'm like, it feels a little pandemic-y, you know, where I'm like, should I eat candy for breakfast and drink during the day? Like, who cares? I, what am I doing tomorrow? I'm walking. I'm walking all day. What about the next day? I'm also walking that day. Like, there's a weird, like, unhinged sort of anything happens vibe that I don't, I don't love. And the ability to not do what I want to do, which is just to write dumb, funny shit all day, you know. Do you think that what happens is you guys outside all summer getting sunburned uh continuing this or do you see that you know maybe the the pressure will mount and they will start talking i don't know i mean i I do feel like right i'm very stubborn i think writers are very stubborn whether it's taking notes or just digging in when they think they're right um i think the majority of us are better at walking and and just dialing into that and just not letting go like a dog with a bone I think we're better at that than executives are at taking criticism and losing wild, insane sums of money. So I think we can do this for longer than they can. Um, you know, there's going to be cost and a lot of harm, but uh, 
I think we're in, we're in it for the long fight. I don't, I don't honestly know, you know, I didn't think there was going to be a strike, so I'm not the best person to ask, but I, I know that the enthusiasm has not flagged even in week three, people are just, you know, continuing to show up and do what they need to do. And um, yeah, we'll go all summer. We'll go through the fall, whatever we have to do. Like, you know, it, it only ends one way. Like I don't, that's what I don't understand. Like, what do you, do you think every writer ever is off the table and you're going to you just use AI or just raise a generation of a small group of scabs you can pull over. And like, you're not going to break the writer's guild and you're, you're, you're going to need writers. Like we are going to settle at some point. Like, why do we have to go through this where you lose all the money and we lose money? It's like, it only ends one way. <laughs> the guild doesn't die at the end of this. You know what I mean? So it, it's, it's, it, I don't understand from that perspective, but uh, yeah, we'll go all summer. How do we help? How do country rubes in places like Montana or Illinois or North Carolina help your cause? Chad, I need you on a plane tonight. Well, yeah, if you're going to dial down your co-main event podcast subscription. Yeah, we can't have that. I will be out there ready to. bricks through windows. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It involves mailing koozies in the mail. So I think we're we're fucked. We're absolutely fucked if that's the case. Um. I, you know, I've been asked that a lot, and I know, Chad, you were, yeah, kind enough to pledge solidarity on Twitter when canceling Netflix. Um, I know people have done that, and I'm I'm sure that's helpful. I also understand the reality of people like watching Netflix, and, and uh, I don't know whether that's more of a symbolic gesture or if it does help, but, like, that is certainly appreciated. And I think, like, you know, podcasts like this, like getting the word out about the writers are not greedy, we're not selfish Hollywood assholes, we... we are asking for what is fair. And, and it's in, and like you said, putting the blame, making sure the blame is where the blame should go uh, and keeping it sort of united for the writers. Um, and then there are, you know, I don't have the address in front of me, but there are, there is a strike fund, um, you know, for people who have been put out of, for writers guild members and other entertainment people who have been, you know, inconvenienced by this in order to kind of keep them afloat. There is, so, you know, you can donate to that, but I think the most important thing is just sort of, getting the word out, which is, you know, what we're doing here, hopefully. Excellent. Kevin, is there anything else we didn't ask you about that you wanted to make sure you mentioned? No, I, you got the part earlier about Ben's biceps can't grow forever. Right. And Mm -hmm. I saw him a couple of years ago. Yeah. I mean, it was a couple of years ago in New York when I met him, it was like, he's smuggling coconuts in there. And then (laughs) at the CMA meetup, Maybe yeah. he's got limes, maybe plums. You know, I don't, yeah. know. I don't know what's <laughs> hey, going on. Other time comes for us all, Kevin. <laughs> uh, no, I'm joking, obviously. But uh, no, I appreciate you guys having me on. And I think we pretty much covered everything. So. Well, yeah, I thought it went very well. We got we commented on Ben's body. Uh, you got to get your lie about having a girlfriend in there. <laughs> uh, other than that, you know, I, was, I think I thought it went very well. There's no way you can prove she doesn't exist as far That's as true. she's out uh, there and she loves me, damn it. <laughs> you don't live in a hotel. All right. Uh, <laughs> thanks for Ke- for being on, Kevin. We appreciate it a lot. I think people will really like to uh, listen to this conversation and know a little bit more about the writer's strike. And right now, Ben and I are going to get into cracking up. Release the Kraken. Wenberg turns. He's marked by two. Hensick is one of those. Egan tries to push it up the wall for Buffalo. And now Robert Hay. A little bit by Schwartz. Here's Everly. He scores! Pick up the phone. It's answer time. The Kraken roar back on the goal by Jordan Everly. The Nears to the forehand with a shot. He scores! 
Look at that reception there by Maddie Beneers. Off balance, backhand, moves it up outside the dots. They go short side. Top. Well, Ben, it was a it was a fun ride. It was a crazy ride throughout the 2023 season with this particular incarnation of the Seattle Kraken. It ended on Monday with a 2-1 loss in the seventh game of the second round NHL playoff series. The Kraken played with the Dallas Stars. This one went down in Big D. You know what? I just astonished myself by looking at uh, the schedule here and seeing that this game happened on Monday. Yeah. It seems like it happened like three weeks ago to me, maybe because it was such an emotional ride for me. But yeah, no wonder I'm still processing my grief. It was just a few days ago, man, that this thing happened. And so the Seattle Kraken are bounced from the NHL playoffs. Just one game, just one win away from qualifying for the Western Conference Championship Series, which would have been against the hated and loathsome Las Vegas Golden Knights. And frankly, one of the things I was actually able to feel pretty good about was my recognition that I don't know that my heart would have been able to withstand a championship conference championship season series. I'm sorry, against the Knights. I would just, I probably would have succumbed to a heart attack if that were the case. So maybe it's a good thing that we, that this is where it ends for the Kraken this year. That is certainly one way to look at it. (laughs) That as bad as it is, as much as it hurt to lose in game seven. And when you came so close to advancing to the Western Conference final, so much further than we had any right to expect or thought we had any right to expect when this season started, it would have felt so much worse to see him bounce from the playoffs by the hated, loathsome Vegas Golden Knights. Yeah. So there is that. It's still, you know, I told myself again and again, hey, making it to the playoffs, that's that's really good. Then they beat Colorado. Hey, advance it to the next round of the playoffs. That's amazing. Whatever happens from here, all gravy. Then if it hadn't gone to seven games, you know, if they had lost in five or six games, I would have been like, "Mm, okay, I never had a chance to really get my hopes up. But sitting there on Monday, waiting for Monday night's game and knowing you're just one game away, just a couple bouncing pucks away from going to the Western Conference Finals. Man, that, that stings. You know, even as much as I told myself that I wasn't going to get my hopes up too much past a certain point, I did. It hurt. And I'm living with it. Yeah. You know what, though? I think it would have hurt no matter what. I think you're just telling yourself stories right now saying like, oh, it could have been easier. It could have been better. Maybe if they just would have gotten blown out immediately by the avalanche and we would have been able to be like, all right, well, they made the playoffs at least, although once they got there, it didn't really seem like they belong. One of the things maybe that hurt the most is that they absolutely looked like they belonged. They looked like yeah. they were the better team against the Avalanche. There were long stretches against the Dallas Stars where they looked like they were the better team. The Stars scored many of their goals in that series in sort of like short spurts the same way the Avalanche did, whereas you know, if you're talking about just talking about overall control time or uh, holding the lead or looking, you know, looking like the better team, I felt like the Kraken had more minutes, more overall minutes of looking like the better team, with the exception of a couple of games where the stars just came out and kind of manhandled them and took over. And unfortunately, one of those games was game seven, where you can't take anything away from the stars, man. They played suffocating, uh, absolutely watertight defense. The Kraken just couldn't get anything going. 
substantively or sustained in the offensive zone. They couldn't get any possession. They couldn't really get their four check going. They couldn't really run the kind of offense that they want to run. And subsequently, the Stars win 2-1 in what was a pretty hotly contested defensive game where Philip Grubauer, the goalie for the Kraken, once again played out of his mind. But on the defensive end, the Kraken just seemed to give up turnovers over and over again that allowed the Stars to essentially get wide open looks right in front of the net. Yeah. And two of them went in. And there you go. That's the end of your season right there. You know, if you would have asked me headed into these playoffs, what do I think are the biggest weak spots that I'm worried about for the Kraken? Right up near the top of the list would have been goaltending. Yeah. And yet that ended up being one of the strongest aspects of their game. You know, yeah. I I was really worried about, uh, are we going to have to do the, the, you know, duo of Philip Grubauer and Martin Jones? Or like, is Philip Grubauer going to have some collapses like he has seemed to have at times during the regular season in these two years with the Kraken? And he was awesome all throughout the playoffs. And even in game seven, there were points where he was just like, he's the only thing keeping a minute because they're giving yeah. up a lot of really good offensive chances and he's playing really, really well. And it, you know, definitely... Overall, in that series, you compare him to Jake Ottinger on the other end of the ice. He definitely had the better series. I mean, Jake Ottinger had like a you know he came up big when he needed to a couple times, especially Game Seven made some good saves. But Philip Grubauer really, really surprised me. Uh, the other thing that I would have said I was worried about was the Kraken's complete inability to generate anything on the power play, and that seemed like it started to change toward yeah. the end of the playoffs. Is that they not only seemed like they were coming up with some offensive production, but also seemed like gaining confidence, and that they were playing more like, here's an opportunity for us to go out and really get one, rather than, you know, here's one where we probably won't get scored on, because we got the man advantage. Yeah. Uh, I would agree with those two statements, and I would have added before the playoffs a bit of a concern on my part that I just didn't know how they would adapt to the style of playoff hockey because they weren't, during the regular season at least, they weren't really thought of as that physical of of a team. They're more of like a fast skating, I don't know if you want to say precision team, but they're sort of like a, a, a fast moving, deep offensive team. But I thought that they did really well, surprisingly well, becoming more physical, like kind of amping up that part of their game and really handing it to teams that, at least in theory, were supposed to be bigger and stronger and and, uh, more physical than they were. So, yeah, it was weird that those three aspects of the game that you would have considered big time flaws coming into the playoffs were not the, the weakest parts of their game. Uh, and like I said, man, you got to hand it to the stars, especially in this game seven. They played exactly the style of game that they needed to play, and they won. Uh, the Kraken hit the post a couple of times. They hit the pipes with a couple of shots, but so did the stars yeah. in the previous game. So that all kind of comes out in the wash. But the Kraken, to me, in especially in this game seven, just looked flat. They just like they, like I said, kept turning it over. They couldn't get any sustained offensive possession. It seemed like all of their passes, or many of their passes, were just a little off where the intended guy couldn't get to it and it causes a turnover or what have you. Uh, and I sent you a text to this effect during the game that I, I thought that they looked perhaps a little tired from, you know, pretty much playing until the last day of the regular season to secure the wild card. And then having two very emotional roller coaster seven game series to begin the playoffs, you get to game fucking 14 that you have played in the playoffs and you know you might be a little bit tuckered out you might be a little bit tired so i thought that that was uh 
at least to me, appeared to be a factor as well. Yeah. Well, some of the positives that I take out of this, especially when you start thinking about next season already, is the Kraken have some young talent that yeah. really showed that uh, you know there's there's reason to be excited about the future between Maddie Beniers, Matthew Ice himself, uh, Ty Cartier. You know, there's there's young dudes on the Kraken who seem like okay, we're we've got a basis to form around for the future. And we also have a team that so far has not had to rely on any one player as its star, like a player where if he goes down or, you know, gets uh, enters free agency and gets signed away somewhere else, it's a disaster. So several games where it's like, you know, the Kraken to go out there in a playoff game, score seven goals, and it's by seven different guys. So that encourages me. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, you, you also got Shane Wright potentially showing up any time now, the number one draft pick from last year. Uh, they just signed uh, Yager Furkus, who is, uh, has a hilarious name and also has <laughs> hilarious hair, but is, is expected to be at least a decent player. Cartier really surprised me in his ability to get called up for his first NHL stint in the playoffs in a very important high-pressure situation and pretty much came up and just immediately looked like he belonged and started scoring goals and, you know, brought a big body physical presence to the Kraken that, like I said, they kind of needed. And he made a couple of mistakes out there, but so does everyone. And he really pretty much looked like he belonged, which I was excited about. And I thought it was great that they kept him on the starting roster, even when Jared McCann came back from his injury and Cartier continued to to contribute, which was a great sign. So yeah, I agree with you that there's I'm pretty excited to see what guys like that and and Maddie Beneers, who frankly, you know, I don't necessarily know if Maddie Beneers is gonna develop into a an elite scorer, like an elite goal scorer. He's very good, but like he is just like an amazing skater and puck handler and passer. Just like he was styling on fools in the playoffs, pretty much skating everybody's doors right off, which I thought was impressive showing from him. So yeah, I agree that that, that there is a, a bright future, and uh, they pro- I think they probably gained some respect with this playoff run. Whereas when they showed up against the Avalanche, everyone were just expecting them to get steamrolled, and and then they did not. Here's my question though, and frankly, I have no idea what is going to you know what i don't i really have any idea what everyone's contract situations are so i don't know who will turn out to be a free agent or who the kraken stand to lose or will have to try to re-sign this offseason but let me let me let me put you in ron francis's shoes let's say you're the gm out there in seattle what's your number one place where you feel like you need something what's your number one fix heading into 2024 well first of all I'm going to implement my plan of calling up the Edmonton Oilers every single week to see if they are ready to deal Connor McDavid. Yeah. You may want to add the Blackhawks to that list. Just call them. Just give them a call, say every Wednesday afternoon, being like, how you feeling about that first pick? Maybe you want to send it our way because we're, we're interested in acquiring both McDavid and uh, Bedard. We feel like that would be good for the organization if we got those two guys. Yeah. And let's just like, let's get creative about our deal making, you know, like maybe we don't have any one player who you would trade away Connor McDavid for, but, uh, how about Bowie? Yeah. We give Wait, you hold Bowie. on Bowie. My kids are obsessed with Bowie. Now, after I brought that Bowie doll home from Seattle, my youngest fucking loves Bowie. He's talking about Bowie all the time. I'll give you Bowie straight up, straight <laughs> up right now. 
just trade them, pack your bags, Bowie. You're going to Edmonton. You're going to clean the toilets there. I don't give a damn what they do with you. You know, just, and I'm, I'm playing a long game with it. I'm not sitting here thinking like, I'm going to get this deal done the first time I call. I'm doing, I'm like Andy Dufresne in Shawshank Redemption writing for money for the prison library. I just, at a certain point, you just won't be able to ignore me anymore. You know? So that's, that's number one thing that I'm kind of thinking about. I also feel like, you know, this, you, you built a, a, a kind of a, a good core base here. I do think that maybe long-term goaltending will still be a thing that you need to think about, yeah. uh, you know, a long-term solution because Philip Grubauer stood on his head a little bit for us in the playoffs, but I don't know if that's something you can count on for the entire regular season. Um, and I wish I would like to see the Kraken become a little bit more of a physical force. Just, I don't know if that's going to take one, one dude, where you need to have one dude who is out there just hammering people. Because right now we don't really have that. I mean, you have Elixiak. He's the big guy. If somebody has yeah. to do some fighting, he's usually going to be the guy who does it. He doesn't seem to particularly enjoy it. You got Yanni Gord, who's going to be all up in the mix, just get in people's faces, uh, throwing punches after the whistle and smiling like he's loving every minute of it, but he's also like the smallest guy on the ice. We can get some more of a physical presence at, at defensemen or something. I think that maybe that, ends up making a big difference. Uh, I'm just looking at the the list here. It looks like maybe I'm misreading this here, but it looks like we've got or the Kraken have almost everyone locked down on a long-term deal. Does that seem right? I'm looking at uh, well, five. They're only in their second season. So I'm looking at five, six-year contracts for almost all these guys, except for like Martin Jones, uh, Morgan Geeky, Ryan Donato. Those, those appear to be the only starters that i see who have one-year deals vince dunn on a two-year deal justin schultz on a two-year deal but other than that it seems like we got everybody else on lock which seems pretty good to me uh i agree with you goaltending probably still a concern even though uh the 31 year old german gentleman did become pretty much a rock solid option in front of the net during the playoffs but that is a uh, you know, still concerning, I guess, to, that it took about a year and a half for him to find that that form and and to get to get up to the form that I think they thought he was going to be in when they first paid all that money to get him uh, at the start of last season. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I was going to ask who are the important guys to bring back. I agree. Physical. You know, the thing about Alexiak, he's like huge and occasionally lays a lays the wood on someone. But I don't know that I would necessarily describe or describe him as like an overwhelmingly physical player. Like he should yeah. be because he's freaking enormous out there. But you know, there are other players on the Kraken, Yanni Gord and Brandon Tanev, particularly, who seem to take more relish in laying a hit on somebody. Like Alexiak will do it if it's there, but he's not he's not seeking people out to give him a little how's your father the way yeah. that Yanni Gord and Brandon Tanev both are. But he actually is good at yeah. playing hockey. So it's not like he is there just to be a big guy who punishes people on the ice. He's there because he's a big guy who was also pretty good at hockey. So it, it's kind of unfair for us to just be like, you're the tallest guy on the team. Why aren't you fucking people up? You know? <laughs> I don't think it's unfair at all. <laughs> Get out there, big rig. Start throwing some haymakers. I would love to see you as a coach of a youth hockey team. With this attitude. <laughs> uh, I mean, the... the uh, the narrative, let's say, coming out of last season was pretty grim, right? Everyone thought Dave Haxtell was a moron 
the team was terrible, get rid of Grubauer, blow up the whole thing, start over again. Then they make some changes, but in essence, some like essentially cosmetic changes, really. They brought in some more goal scorers, but they didn't really change the core of the team. It seemed like they, for whatever reason, either were able to execute or embrace further Dave Haxtell's ideas of how they should play. Now, you know, I don't know if they've given out the awards yet, but he's sort of a, uh, he's a finalist for what is essentially the NHL Coach of the Year award. And you obviously have a situation where they did much better than expected this year. So the the uh, the expectations will be different, I think, headed into year three. What What would be your realistic realistic expectation for what the Kraken will do next year. Win Lord Stanley's Cup. Coming for the whole thing. Whole thing. Coming for the coming for the crown. Anything less than us hoisting Lord Stanley's Cup. Driving it down to Pike Place Market so someone can throw a goddamn fish into it is a disappointment. Okay. That's where my expectations are for this team. High, They're up here. Words, They're up yeah, here. They're yeah. way up there. Okay. Well, if that is your expectation, then we may want to get on the horn with Edmonton. Mm-hmm. See if they want let's to send. Just, just talk about it. You know, let's just yeah. talk it over. See if the idea starts to appeal to you after, you know, week 16 of my constant phone calls. <laughs> going to trade McDavid just so Ben folks will stop calling. Mm-hmm. All right. That's going to wrap it up for what may be the last cracking up for several months. So we hope you all enjoyed it. By extension, it's going to wrap up this week's episode of Doing the Damn Thing. Tomorrow, we're back with the Power Hour. Get everybody primed for the weekend of mixed martial arts action upcoming. Once again, if you listen for free and you like the show, consider supporting us over at patreon.com slash co-main event. We're there literally almost every day. So you can get your fill of listening to our voices. As for right now, we'll see you tomorrow. We're done. We're done.